1 Samuel. We are not going to read the text like we normally do, because I printed out 1 Samuel 13 through 15 the other day, and it was eight pages long, which is about how long my sermon manuscripts normally are. So <laughs> we aren't going to read the whole text. I'm trying to look at the notes that I did wind up with. It was not a manuscript. Let's see where we start. The thesis of this sermon that covers this great big chunk of scripture is very simple. Chapters 13 through 15 of 1 Samuel. I think what we're going to see here is that Saul has a problem. And Saul's central problem was disobedience to God. <coughs> and, and furthermore, not only was Saul's central problem disobedience to God, but that the disobedience that was dangerous for him 3,000 years ago is just as dangerous for us today. And I, I think we can see that this is the, the central idea of this these chapters in chapter 13, verse 13. Samuel is speaking to Saul. The prophet Samuel says to him, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. And then over in chapter 15, verse 19, it says, Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And down in verse 26, Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And these ideas kind of bracket this whole passage to tell us that in chapters 13 through 15 of 1 Samuel, Saul has rejected God's word, and he is going to suffer the consequences of it. And as we go through, I'm gonna, we'll go through and summarize the, what happens in the story here in a minute. But I want you to imagine disobedience as like a car ride. So after we, we summarize the text, I, I, what we're going to look at is in this car ride of disobedience, first we're going to look at where, where we're going. What's the destination of disobedience? Where, what are the consequences of disobedience? And then what we're also going to look at is why would you get in that car to start with? Like what is underneath of disobedience that drives us to reject God's word? But before we do that, uh, we should just look at kind of a summary of what happens here in these chapters. So broadly speaking, if you look in chapter 13, initially what you're going to see is Saul has been king for a while. Translations differ in verse 1 as to exactly how long he's been king when these events take place. Uh, the manuscripts, the Hebrew manuscripts conflict here. Um, but he's been king for some amount of time, obviously long enough that his son Jonathan is old enough to command a third of his force. And Jonathan then takes a third, that third of Saul's force, and conquers a part of the Philistine army, the garrison there where he was stationed. And, and this is a great defeat to start with, but then Saul panics because the Philistines are unhappy that, part of, that one of their garrisons got defeated by these piddly little Israelites. And they start to amass this army that is enormous in comparison to anything the Israelites can muster. And not only do the, the Philistines start to, to mass their army and, and bring thousands upon thousands of chariots and men, it says, beyond number, beyond counting, but then Saul's already small army starts to run away. <laughs> so he goes from 3,000 men down to 600. Things are not looking good for Saul. And so he decides 
even though he's supposed to wait for Samuel to come and, and to give him instructions from God and to offer sacrifices, Saul decides to hold my army together and try to keep things together here when we're in this precarious situation. I'm going to go ahead and offer the sacrifices on my own. Now this turns out to be a very poor decision on his part because it results in God rejecting his family line as, as the line of kings in Israel. And at the end of chapter 13, we see how desperate their plight is. Samuel leaves Saul. The prophet leaves the king, does not give him any instructions because he's been disobedient. And we see how desperate it is for the, the Israelites because the Philistines not only have more men, they've got all the technology. There's nobody in Israel who has a sword except for Saul and his son Jonathan. So you've got an army that's 10 to 20 times bigger than yours, and they have swords, and you have farm implements that you have to take to them to get sharpened, and they pay you an, or you charge you an exorbitant amount of money. They're in bad shape. But then we come into chapter 14, and, and it seems like, wow, maybe some good things are going to happen. Jonathan and his armor bearers sneak off from Saul, and they go to this camp of the Philistines, and, and the, the guards see them, and they're not too intimidated by two Israelites, and they say, well, come up here, and we're going to teach you a lesson. And Jonathan and his armor bearer go, and they kill 20 guys. And that seems great, but 20 out of 60 or 80,000 is not very many. But then what happens is God uses this little victory right here to create a massive panic among the Philistines. And the Philistines just start running, killing each other. They're confused. Saul and his army see what's happening like, hey, we should maybe go chase them since they're already in confusion. And they start to push. And things are looking great. Verse 23 tells us, so the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. It's looking great. But then Saul steps in and, and makes it about himself. He makes a costly error. He lessens their victory and he nearly cost his son his life by making this vow. The ESV heading here says Saul's rash vow, which is, I give that the award for understatement of the year. He says, nobody is to eat until it is night and I've been avenged on my enemies. We're going to chase these guys and don't you dare stop to eat. Well, the problem is when you've been fighting all day, some food would give you some energy to keep on running. They go at least 15 miles on foot and nobody's eaten all day. And Saul says, don't you dare satisfy your hunger for food until I've been satisfied with my hunger for revenge. Instead of seeing what God has done through Jonathan and rejoicing in it, Saul says, oh, I'm going to get these guys, and it's all about me. Well, Jonathan doesn't hear his dad, eats some honey on the way, and it ends up almost costing him his life, only at the intervention of the people to say, no, you are not going to kill your son, Saul. God's worked a great victory through him. You are not going to kill him. That's the only thing that saves Jonathan's life. And it, at the end of chapter 14, it's very interesting because Saul is obviously a train wreck at this point, and yet God is continuing to, to work through him. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, verse 47 of 14, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Amorites, Ammonites, sorry, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. 
So even though you've got this guy who is disobedient to God, he's foolish, yet God is continuing to work through King Saul. We come to chapter 15, and God sends Saul on a special mission. I want you, God says, to destroy the Amalekites. Now the Amalekites, if you remember from Exodus, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, the Amalekites, unprovoked, attack the Israelites as they're on their way out of Egypt. And God at that point in Exodus 17, verse 14, he, he pronounces judgment on the Amalekites and says, the day is coming when you will all be wiped out. Now that hasn't happened yet, they're, and they continue to be a thorn in the side of Israel. You see that in Judges. There's multiple times when they're teaming up with other nations to fight against Israel. And God says to Saul, I want you to go destroy every last one of them. Men, women, children, infants, all their livestock, everything. I want it all gone. And Saul says, okay. But then he actually goes into battle, and he spares the king. Well, it'd be a great, a great victory to bring back the king, and now I'm a king over a king. And they spare the bets of, of the livestock and, and of the animals, because, well, we're going to use those for sacrifices. And God sends Samuel, the prophet, to Saul and tells him, no, that's, that's not what I wanted. And God rejects Saul from being king because he refused to obey what God had said and instead tried to do things his own way. That's a very brief summary of, of a lot of text. And we're going to return in, in the next couple of sermons and zoom in on some of the things that are really worth spending some time on here. Chapter 14, I think Jonathan is a great example for us of courage. He doesn't let go and get God, or let go and let God. He instead trusts God and gets going. I mean, he's, he's He's a great example for us, so we'll, we'll take some time and look at that. And there's also uh, some kind of tough theological questions that I think are important for us in chapter 15 about whether God changes his mind or not, because the, the narrator tells us God repented, and Samuel says, Samuel, the authorized spokesperson for God in Israel, says, no, God does not repent, so what's going on there? Uh, that'll be... But those are questions I just want to shelve for today and think about Saul. What... He's the main character in these three chapters. And what can we learn from his life? Oftentimes in, in Scripture, especially in narrative portions, we don't have our list of do this, don't do this, here's how you should live, here's what to take away. You just have to look and see, okay, who does the author portray in a positive or negative light? And what do I learn from that? Saul is portrayed here in a very very negative light, I think. And, and so we should look at his life and see what can we learn about faith, what can we learn about obedience to God, what can we learn about disobedience. So the first question I want to ask is, if we're looking at, if, if my thesis is right, that Saul's main problem here is disobedience, if, if we're in that car, if we're on that road of disobedience, where does it get him in the end? Where will disobedience take us in the end? Where is it driving us to? The first thing I think we should see is that disobedience leaves us in the dark. 1 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 8. This 
So this is after that first defeat of the Philistines that, that Jonathan had worked. It says, he, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. And we'll go back and look at where Samuel had said that. Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him, from Saul. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So what's Saul's sin here? At first, when you read it, you think his sin is offering the sacrifices. Well, he's not he's a king, he's not a priest, he shouldn't offer the sacrifices. But if you read later on in 1st and 2nd Samuel, you actually see some kings offering sacrifices, David and Solomon, and there's no negative repercussions for them. So I think the, the primary failure here of, San, of Saul is to trust God and wait for Samuel. If you look back at 1st Samuel 10, 1 Samuel 10, verse 8. Uh, we'll read verse 7 as well. Samuel is speaking here to Saul, and he says, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what to do. And, and Saul has apparently waited till the seventh day, but he hasn't waited till the end of the day because while he's still finishing up offering the sacrifices, Samuel shows up. You see that in, in verse 10 of chapter 13. As soon as he had finished, as soon as Saul had finished with these offerings, Samuel comes. He, he's so impatient. He's, he's failing to wait for what God has said would happen. And thus he's ignored God's word, which was the only way he was going to get more words from God. God. Samuel was coming not just to offer the sacrifices, but to give Saul instructions. And Saul is in a place where he desperately needs instruction. He, he's got a massive army arrayed against him. He's got a tiny little force that's scattering. He needs a word from God. He needs God to speak to him. And he's ignored what God's already told him. And so instead of Samuel then coming and telling him what to do in this situation, Samuel just leaves. Like, see you later, Saul. You haven't listened to what God said to start with. I'm not going to give you more words to ignore. It seems really dumb on, on Saul's part, but I wonder, doesn't that seem typical of how we operate in our own lives? We want special guidance from God. 
in, in many situations. Have you ever wanted that kind of guidance and felt like God was silent, like he wasn't speaking to you? One question that can be really helpful for us to ask in that situation is, am I listening to what he's already clearly said? You know, so I, I think about, let's pick on myself here so that I, I don't offend anybody else, but like I think about high school where I had multiple times where I wanted a relationship to work, right? And I would pray, God, give me wisdom, God, give me guidance. But I wasn't listening to what God had clearly said about relationships and about sexuality. I was disobeying a clear instruction and then wanting special guidance on top of that. Well, God's not going to lead you over here if you're not listening to what's clearly said. That's what happened to Saul. And it's what will happen to us. Like, if, Why would God give you clear direction about what to do about work if you're not honoring him with your money or you're being dishonest at work to start with? Why is he going to give you clear direction on a specific relationship if you're not listening to what he has to say about pursuing relationships only with other believers or you're looking at pornography or things like that? Like, You've got to start by listening to what he's already said. Saul, Saul does not listen to God. He's about to head into battle without God's guidance as, as Samuel arises and leaves in verse 15. It's the same place where Adam and Eve were, right? They disobey God's clear instruction, and then they're left scrambling. What do we do? We tie some big leaves together. We go hide in the bushes. We don't know what to do. We're left in the dark. This leads Saul to the, 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 same, the same being in the dark not listening to God, leads him to his foolish vow in chapter 14, where he, he's, he's basically making it up on the fly, right? As he's pursuing the enemy, he doesn't have instructions from God on what to do and then what to do and then what to do. He's just like, well, they're running, so we better chase them. And they're my enemies, so you guys, you listen to me, and we're going to keep on going. Don't you stop to eat. He, he doesn't... He doesn't think through what would God want in this situation. He only stops. He's, a, he's about to go attack them again at night, that night, without consulting God. It's only because the priest says, Saul, Saul, we should probably stop for a minute and talk to God about this. That's the only thing that stops him from making another foolish mistake. The second thing we see, disobedience leaves us in the dark. Disobedience also has generational Consequences. You see that in chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For the Lord, Then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Your kingdom shall not continue. So Saul's decision to sin, Saul's decision to ignore the word of the Lord, didn't just have repercussions in his own life. It affected all of his children after him. Even Jonathan here, who is this hero, by the end of the book, is dead. He's dead because God has rejected that family line. And you see that in Exodus, in, in the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 and verse 5, you shall not bow before carved images or serve them. 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we're responsible for our own sin, right? Like, if I'm sinning, it's not my parents' fault, and if my kids sin, it's not my fault. Each person is responsible for their own sin, but our sins have consequences that stretch way beyond us. Saul's sin has generational consequences. It also has broad-reaching, immediate consequences because that instability at the top affects the entire nation. It affects everyone around him that he is rejecting God's word. The next thing we see is that disobedience ultimately, and this is the most severe thing, disobedience to God ultimately leads to being rejected by God. In chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 17 to 26. Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go to vote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, the sheep and the ox, and the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Saul, Saul might have thought his decisions were insignificant. He was small in his own eyes, verse 17. But his actions matter to God, and they certainly matter between him and God. Because he chooses to reject God, Saul is rejected as the king, verses 23 and 26, and the kingdom, verse 28, is torn from him. Now these are all symptoms of a far greater rejection of which Saul is not the only one who receives. We all, if we follow this path of disobedience, are rejected by God. To, to reject God's word, to disobey him, to sin, has a consequence. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. That's the ultimate rejection, being cast out from the presence of God forever. That's where this ride ends. 
If we decide to follow our own way, to do what we want rather than what God says, the end of that way is death. If we harden our hearts towards God, we will be cut off from him. And that can even happen to the most outwardly wonderful and religious people. Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are these group of people who say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and do many mighty works in your name and cast out demons in your name? And Jesus says to them, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. So what gets us in the car? What gets us, if that's where the road ends, that's a kind of not a good place, right? That's not where you want to be. What gets us in that car to start with? The root of disobedience is self-reliance. The root of disobedience is self-reliance. Chapter 13, verse 8, we saw Saul had a problem. The Philistines were mounting against him. He had a real problem. So it tells us, chapter 13, verse 9, the very first word of that verse. So, because the people are scattering away from Saul with his mounting enemy, he decides to innovate his own solution. He decides to trust his own wisdom rather than what God has said. He has a clear command from God, but it's not producing the results that he wants because Samuel's not here yet. And so he charts his own course. And it still seems religious. Second half of the verse, he says, bring the offerings to me. Chapter 15, verses 19 to 21. He's, he's arguing with, with Samuel here. Samuel, Saul said to Samuel, verse 20, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. He thinks he's doing what God wants, but he's not, he's not actually listening to God. He's serving the Lord on his own terms. And God does not accept service to him on your terms. He accepts them on his terms. Religion can make for a fine veneer for godless disobedience. But that doesn't make God okay with it. If you want to look just real quickly at Mark chapter 7. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who are the Pharisees and the scribes. They're real upset that Jesus and his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. In verse 6 and following, Jesus says to them, Well did Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to, hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, well, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed out. And many such things you do. Religion on its own, the externals, if it's not accompanied by a heart that desires to please the Lord, to obey him, doesn't mean anything. God is after Saul's heart. He's after your heart. You can come to church, pray before your meals, give up your money. Those are wonderful things. I hope you do all of them. 
But why? Because it's how you've traditionally done things? Or because you're committed to Christ? The center of Saul's universe was Saul. You see that in he's self-willed, he's self-directed, he's self-justifying, he's trying to self-aggrandize. Every time Jonathan does something, he directs the attention back to himself. Saul is all about Saul. And each of us has that inborn tendency. Sin is ultimately self-worship. We want to be God. Is that you this morning? Do you see what God calls that? That self-centered heart? That disobedient heart? In 1 Samuel 15... Verse 23, rebellion, rejecting God, doing things your own way, is as the sin of divination or sorcery or witchcraft. We look at those things and we can think, oh, those are pretty bad. Well, when you rebel against God and choose to do things your own way, that's how God sees it. Presumption is as the sin of iniquity and idolatry, worshiping another God. This is not a joking matter. This is not a small thing. And it's what we are all given to. It is the essence of sin, to worship ourselves and not God. The only hope is repentance and turning to God. And, and Saul doesn't even do this, it doesn't look like. Verses 24 to 31, it, it seems that even as he kind of acknowledges, well, yes, I've sinned, but would you come back to the elders of the people with me so that I look good in front of them? Would you honor me before them, Samuel, please? Like, I don't want to lose my position in front of them right now. He's just making an external move to justify himself before the people. I don't doubt that Saul feels bad. We all feel bad sometimes. That's the normal human emotion part of being created in the image of God. It's not the same thing as repentance. It's not the same thing as agreeing with God about your sin. What is real repentance? It's acknowledging our unrighteousness and trusting the only righteous one who can save us, Jesus Christ. It's, it's looking away from my own ability to figure out my own life and trusting in the one who lived a perfect life and died for me. If you do that, he then actually changes who you are and makes you want to obey him. He gives you a love for him that produces obedience. John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Only Christ's perfect righteousness, his perfect obedience, can accomplish right standing with God. My obedience will never do that. It will never be good enough. But all of those who have trusted in Christ have a changed heart that will genuinely, progressively grow in obedience to him. And 1 Samuel 15 tells us that that kind of obedience is better than any sacrifice you could ever make. Verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So often we want obedience, like we want our external religion to be a flashy thing. 
but most generally, obedience is much more mundane. There's those people in Matthew 7 who Jesus casts out who said, look at all the awesome stuff we did for you. We cast out demons. We did many mighty works. They, they were the people who on the outside, the world would say, they're the super Christians. But obedience is often much more mundane. Be honest on your taxes. Be faithful to your spouse. Refuse to participate in gossip. Honor your father and your mother. Not very exciting things. But if I went through that little list, that like four thing list, and you didn't think of something where you fell short, you're a lot better than me. It, it's hard, and it's only possible if our trust is in Christ and he's given us his spirit. He's given the spirit who creates a love that produces obedience. Obedience does not... Obedience isn't something we can muster up on our own. We'll always end up failing over and over and over again. But true obedience can come as a fruit of a spirit-born love for God. We need to trust that God ultimately knows what's important. Saul didn't trust that the Lord knew what was best, and so he tried to do things his own way. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 tells us to trust in the Lord with all our heart and to lean not on our own understanding, to in all our ways acknowledge him, and he will direct our paths. I just want to close by reading Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which say, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. O my God, your law is within my heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that because of what your Son has done for us, we can pursue obedience from new hearts. If we're trusting in you, you've pulled out the heart of stone, the heart that is hard towards you, and you've given us a heart of flesh. You've enabled us to worship in spirit and in truth, and that truth tells us what you want, and, and the spirit enables us to obey you. Would you give us that desire, Father? That's a supernatural thing. That's not natural to our flesh. We need your help, and we ask for it. In Jesus' name, amen.